Please be seated, and children, you are dismissed. Uh, children, you can go to the rear. Um, let me say from the beginning, I want to thank those of you that labor hard at praying. Um, Joey, I think that was Colleen, and I think that was Jake. Was that J- you, Jake? I don't know where you are, somewhere out there. Jake, I think it was you. Was that you praying? I think it was you. If it wasn't Jake, I'm thankful for who it was. Okay, Will saying yes. Thank you, Will. Uh, you know, it's easy to remember those that lead us in song and how hard they work and how, you know, I guess those of us that preach try to work hard in that way, but um, it's easy to forget those that work hard at praying, and I was worshiping the Lord because of you that were praying this morning, so thank you, uh, brothers and sisters, for praying for us. Um, if you are a committed follower of Christ and uh, turning from your sin, believing in the same gospel you hear every week, um, you understand this to be your church home. Uh, let me encourage you to commit to the church by attending the new members class this afternoon. You can talk to Joey about that. Some of you are already signed up for that. Uh, if you're new to the church and you're visiting for the first or second time, welcome. Uh, if you're not a Christian, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Nathan Knight. Uh, I, is, I get the privilege of serving as a pastor here. This church has been meeting as a church in this community for going on about seven years. We're going to have our anniversary here in a few weeks. We are a collection of deeply flawed men and women. If you're looking for the perfect church, you have not found it here. Uh, you should go somewhere else. Uh, and if you find it, let me know. I'd love to go there. Um, never seen one before. Uh, but we are a collection of deeply flawed men and women. There's about 135 of us that have committed to each other to follow Jesus and worship the Lord. And uh, we are citizens of heaven here in the country of earth. And so we're trying to help each other follow Jesus and delight in him. You've made your way to our family gathering, our weekly family gathering, where we come here every single week to be reminded of Christ and the love of Christ. Isn't it an awful tragedy that we forget his love? I think Colleen was praying that earlier. And so we come here every week to be reminded of the love of Christ. My guess is most of you in the room have heard of Christ, of Jesus Christ. If you haven't, you're going to hear a lot about him today. I'm going to be happy to tell you a whole lot about him. He's all we have at this church. He's our hope. He is our joy. He is the one that uh, is our identity. He is the one that orients us. He is the one that challenges us. He is the one that directs us uh, for his glory. He's the one that wants us to know him and to make him known. And so one of the ways that Jesus has made himself known to us is through his word, through his word, through the Bible, through the Bible. And so we believe that this Bible uh, is all of it. All of it is God's words to all of us. And so we believe that this word that is spoken in the Bible is sometimes hard to understand and oftentimes difficult to follow, but we believe it's good. We believe it's good. And so that's why we give ourselves to studying it every single week here uh, in the life of this church. We want to grow in our love for God. And we want to grow in our love for our neighbors, so that's why we're glad that you showed up today, that we would love you by teaching you his word. Uh, we've been looking here in the book of Philippians in the Bible, it's towards the back if you haven't found it already, feel free to look in those table of contents. I do that sometimes to find the book of Nahum and Habakkuk and somewhere in the Old Testament sticky pages. We are in the New Testament on the book of Philippians. This letter in Philippians is written by a guy that Jesus commissioned to speak on his behalf. And his name is Paul. Paul. This letter is written by Paul and he's, he's writing to a church that existed around about 60 AD, about 30 years after Christ has resurrected from the grave. He's, he's writing to a church that existed in southeastern Europe. 
And he's writing to encourage this church to make his joy complete. To make his joy complete. And the way that uh, the church, Paul understands that church can make his joy complete is the way that any church can make their joy complete. Namely, by enjoying the gospel and advancing the gospel. That's what he wants to see happen. And so the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering what the gospel is, this is the most important part of the whole ceremony today. So listen to this portion of the service more than any other time. This is the whole reason we gather. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that the one holy true God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is eternal. He took on flesh and lived as a man on this earth for roughly 30 plus years. And he laid his life down as an offering for sinners who trust him, who believe him, who give their life to him. And after he was crucified for sinners, he then was raised on the third day. And on that third day, after his resurrection, those that turn from sin, trust him, they get the new life that he had in the resurrection. And so we then are born again. We may look the same, but we have hope because we've been born again because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that message, that simple message, maybe you've heard it before, is not the kind of ABCs of the Christian faith. We understand that we never grow out of that message, only deeper into it. That's not the elementary school of the Christian faith. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. And Paul seems to be really wanting us to be oriented by this gospel. He seems to want us to be thinking hard about it and living in light of it. And for that reason, I think we see Paul in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 1 talking about the gospel. You see there that he is thankful to God for the partnership of the gospel. You see that, that they share. We saw last week in verse 12 that the suffering Paul has was endured in serving to advance the gospel. And so Paul understands that you never get over the gospel. And so we here at this church never get over the gospel. And the moment we get bored by the gospel, we are concerned for ourselves. It bothers us. And so Paul continues this theme of gospel advancement through suffering in our verses today, in verses 15 to 18. You're going to see them behind me. Here's what he says. We're going to pick right up where we left off last week. Verse 15 says this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I Rejoice. So, two things we're going to see today. We're going to see kind of selfish proclamation, and we're going to see joyful proclamation. And my plea for us today from this passage is this. I pleading with us that we would not take ourselves so seriously, but instead we would take Christ seriously. That's my plea. I think that's what Paul's plea is. To not take ourselves so seriously, but instead we would joyfully take Christ and his proclamation seriously. And we're going to see that in those two points of selfish proclamation, not good, versus joyful proclamation. And that's what we're after. Okay? So first off, let's take a look at this idea, selfish proclamation. But before I do, let me pray for us again.
Forgive us for selfish ambitions, God. And raise in us a desire to joyfully proclaim Christ above our own name. Amen. Selfish proclamation. So Paul here in this passage is informing what I'm calling Grace Church Philippi, local church there, that his suffering, that the suffering that he has endured is nothing more than a servant to advance the gospel. We saw that in verse 12. So Paul, for suffering for Paul was like a platter that carried the food of the gospel to those that were hungry and needy for the glories of Christ. Suffering is a platter of sorts. You see that there in verse 12? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Suffering, friends, is nothing more than a servant for the advancement of the gospel. God is so great that he can use suffering even to advance the gospel. Nothing can, is he not over that he can't use to advance the gospel. Now, it's easy to think that Paul's suffering was only coming from those that oppose Christ. It would be easy to believe that. But actually, what we find going on here in verses 15 to 18 is not only does Paul have adversaries outside the camp of Christ, we find that he's got some adversaries inside the camp of Christ. That seems to be what's going here. Rivals inside the camp of Christ that are bringing suffering to him. And Paul tells us here, so in this passage, he tells us that there are two groups of people that are proclaiming Christ there in Rome. That's where he's imprisoned as he's writing this letter. Two groups of people proclaiming Christ. There are those that are doing it out of goodwill and love, knowing that Paul is there in Rome for the defense of the gospel. But then there are those that are preaching Christ out of envy or rivalry. In verse 17, Paul says these guys preach Christ out of selfish ambition. They don't preach Christ sincerely, but instead they seek to preach Christ in order to afflict Paul, to afflict him, to hurt him. So two camps proclaiming Christ while Paul is there in Rome that he wants the Philippians to know about. The one preaching the gospel out of love and goodwill and the ones that are preaching the gospel out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, seeking to do Paul harm. Now what's interesting about all of this is that this group of people that are preaching Christ from selfish ambitions, apparently what's odd about this is they are proclaiming the truth about Christ, but they're doing it with wrong motives. Strange. So look at verse 15. It says there he, that, 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 his, uh, that his rivals preach Christ. Verse 17 says that they preach Christ. Verse 18 says, Paul says that whether in pretense, bad motives, or in truth, good motives, either way, Christ is proclaimed. So apparently they're saying the truth about Christ. So if these rivals were preaching the wrong things about Christ, false doctrine, false truths, we can trust that Paul would mention that. We know we've got entire books of the Bible where he is having polemics about the, how people are preaching the wrong Christ. But he doesn't seem to be saying that here, not here. He seems to be indicating these people are preaching the truth about Christ, but with wrong motives. And so these two camps, uh, we have the right motive camp and the wrong motive camp, but either way, they're both preaching the truth about Christ. And as we will see, the desire to preach the truthfulness about Christ that's what's most important to Paul. That's the whole point of this passage. And that's what needs to be most important to us, Restoration Church. We need to be most concerned about proclaiming the truthfulness of Christ no matter what else comes. 
So we don't, need, we don't know exactly why these guys are preaching Christ with the intention of afflict, in, uh, afflicting harm to Paul. We're not sure why. Maybe it was because Paul, the kind of Christian superstar apostle, shows up in town in Rome, and the believers there are losing some street cred, and they don't like it. And maybe they start, you know, kind of trying to denounce his name so that their name can come up. We don't know. We're not sure why they're saying these bad things about Paul. But reality is, they seem to be preaching Christ, and that's what's most important for Paul. Now, let me go ahead and address something here that may be on your mind as you see this passage. Now, it would be easy to conclude that Paul does not care about the means of church planting and church life as long as Christ is proclaimed. You might be tempted to conclude that about this passage, that Paul doesn't really care what happens in the life of the church, doesn't care how the church is ordered, doesn't care how they're acting, as long as they just proclaim Christ. You might be led to believe that's what Paul's saying. It would be easy to say that, that, you know, for instance, church Church membership, baptism, you know, the kind of preaching that we do, these kinds of things don't matter to Paul as long as Christ is being proclaimed. It would be easy to conclude that, but friends, that's not what Paul is doing here. It's not the point of this passage. Paul does not believe in a pragmatic gospel. He does not believe in a utilitarian church. He cares about the means as well as the ends. We've already seen that. Take a look back up there in verse 1. Paul believes that churches should have overseers and deacons. We see later in chapter 2, he believes in a very specific doctrine of Christ, which means he rejects other doctrines of Christ. We have entire letters written by Paul whose purpose is to get churches ordered in a particular way. And so God's word is not unconcerned about the way that we order ourselves. Indeed, God is very concerned about these things. It's just that these things are not the point. They are put in place to serve the point. And the point that Paul is driving at is the truthfulness of Christ in proclaiming that and making it really clear. Paul wants to make clear that the purpose of our faith is and ought to be the proclamation of the truth about Christ. And so, friends, if we get more focused on anything else, if we get envious of other people and other churches, if we get rivalrous of other people and other churches, selfish, if we get more into politics and economics, friends, we lose the mission of the church. We lose it. The the mission of the church is to make disciples that herald, that triumph, that glory in the beauty of Christ. And that's what Paul wants to do here. Paul cares about motives. In our proclamation. And our motives ought to be the good ones that he mentions here, the ones out of love and goodwill. But even if they're not, even if they're not, if we see the truthfulness of Christ being heralded, we should rejoice. That's what Paul's trying to show us. Now remember the point or the occasion of this letter. Remember the reason why Paul is writing. And we've got so much emphasis we find in this letter on unity and humility. So it's clear that Paul has some concerns about the posturing and the other rivalries growing inside the life of this church. He's writing to remind them that they are servants of Christ. Verse 1. He's writing to remind them that joy is, is found in being of the same love and the same minds. Not promoting envious things, selfish things, but instead being of the same loves. Namely, the proclamation of Christ. And what we are reading here then is Paul's attempt to do some positive reinforcement. Instead of him saying, stop that, guys. What he's doing is he's being a bit more covert, a little bit more positive in his teaching. 
In order to check pride, check arrogance, check any disunity in the church, he's reminding them of their first love and where their joy is to be found, namely in the proclamation again of Christ. And so, Restoration Church, may we as a church never, ever, ever, ever preach Christ out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambitions. May that never be true of us. May we never seek to afflict someone we know to be a fellow partaker of the grace of the gospel. May we never do that. Be that an individual or be that another church or another organization. So for instance, friends, if you work with another Christian and they seem to get a little more attention than you, do not run them down. Do not run them down. That's your brother or sister in the Lord. They have been bought by the blood of Christ and reconciled to Him and you will spend eternity with them. So do not have a rivalry with Him. Do not be selfish towards them. Seek to do them well. Don't seek to tear them down, but seek to build them up no matter how they might treat you. No matter how they might treat you. Or if you are aware of another church that preaches the same gospel you heard me preach here earlier, don't pray or hope to speak down their downfall because of some ramifications that has upon us as a church. Don't do that. Pray that the Lord would bless them. Even if that means this church has to suffer as a result of that church growing. So I'm familiar with this now well-known story of the pastor that prays that revival would come to his city. Y'all heard this before. God, please bring revival to, say, Washington, D.C. And the Spirit, in the course of that prayer, asked them, I'll bring revival. I'll answer that prayer if, or as long as you know, that revival is going to come to the church across the street and not yours. You okay with it then? You good revival then? And See, we as a church, we have to say, yes, yes, let it be to that church. If it doesn't come, that's fine, that's fine. As long as it comes, as long as it comes, that's what we have to be able to say. And so that's why, for instance, brothers and sisters, we pray for other churches in the life of this church. You've heard that this morning already. Pray for other churches. And you'll notice that when we pray, we don't pray for other churches necessarily that are around the world. We do that. But did you notice that we also pray a lot for other churches in Washington, D.C.? And did you also notice that when we pray for other churches in Washington, D.C., we don't just pray for the one over there on the other side of town, right? Because they won't have a great effect on us. Did you notice that we actually pray for the ones right here in Northwest D.C.? We want them to advance as Christ is being proclaimed, no matter what that may mean for our church. So we do that. We pray for them. That's why we've done joint services, for instance, with our brothers and sisters down at Washington International from the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's why we've done other joint services with our brothers and sisters at the Anglican Church at All Nations D.C. We come together because we believe the same gospel. So we pray for one another. Joey and I meet time, to, time and time again with other pastors across denominations, agreeing in the gospel, praying for the advance of their churches because they believe that gospel. So the reality is, friends, we have to realize this. Restoration Church very likely has an end date on it. And that's hard for me to think about. But this church very likely someday will dissolve. It won't exist anymore. That's probably going to happen to us. I mean, think about it. The letter here, the church at Philippi, where is that today? It's probably not there. I don't know. I think it's probably dissolved. Think about those great New Testament churches. The church of Jerusalem, the church of Antioch, the one that, church in Antioch just spread the gospel all over the world. Well, it was dissolved at some point. It doesn't exist anymore. Other churches have been planted in, in and around it. 
And so Christ, friends, never promised that individual local churches would never fail. He said that his universal church would never fail. And so we have to be more interested in Christ being proclaimed, even if maybe other churches and other people would not do things the way that we would like to do them. We still have to rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. And so that doesn't mean, though, to be clear, that doesn't mean we need to lighten up on our convictions, but it does mean that we need to be strengthened in our conviction to see Christ moved, Christ's name lifted up all around the world. Whether that means harm to us or it means good to us. Remember that story in the book of Mark where we find the disciples finding some other guys driving out demons in Jesus' name. And the disciples are complaining about these people. And Jesus says to them, don't stop them. Don't stop them. For the one who is against us, the one that is not against us, is for us. Remember that truth, brother, sister. We are in this together in the family of Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus across all the world. One who believes these gospel, this gospel. But rest assured, Restoration Church, we ought not nor should anyone preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Do not do that. Do not do that. We see Paul actually says down here just a few lines later, chapter 2, verse 3, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition. And so, brothers and sisters, strive against the inclination to preach Christ in a way that is wrongly motivated. Do not preach Christ to try to validate your salvation. Do not preach Christ just to prove someone wrong. Preach Christ because you want to preach Christ and see his name highly exhausted. I love this quote from Zinzendorf that he said years ago, preach Christ, die, be forgotten. Amen? I mean, think about this. My great-grandkids will have no idea who I am. That's fine, as long as Christ gets heralded. That's all I care about. I don't care what pain may come to me. And that's the point of this passage. So let's look at that, the joyful proclamation. Joyful proclamation. See, after documenting the two ways people are preaching Christ, Paul comes to the conclusion there in verse 18. What then? What then? So Paul seems to be saying there in verse 18, all right, what do we do with this? What are we to make of these two groups both preaching Christ? The one out of good ambitions and one out of bad. What do we do with this? Paul's conclusion, listen, Christ is proclaimed, I'm happy. I rejoice. Either way, I'm very, very happy. Paul's conclusion is, listen, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I don't care what happens to me. And not only that, I'm I'm joyful about him being proclaimed, even if something bad happens to me. This is where I get joyful proclamation. Paul is joyful for one reason. Whether from bad motives or good motives, the truth of Christ is being heralded. And that's enough for him. It doesn't matter to him whether or not he is being attacked in the process as long as Christ is proclaimed. See, Paul is saying, listen, if you'll preach Christ, afflict me all you want. I don't care. Just make him known. That's what he's after. Paul seems to be giving the Philippians a kind of object lesson here. In a roundabout way, he is addressing any infighting and pride inside the life of the church by showing them how he responds to infighting and pride himself. He's showing how he responds. In short, Paul, again, doesn't care if any harm comes to his name as long as the name of Christ is lifted up. 
That's what he's after. That's what he's trying to show us. Paul is willing to receive the scorn of immature believers if it means the truthfulness of Christ will advance. And not only is Paul okay with that, look there in verse 18. He rejoices in that. He has joy. And so by doing this, by teaching this to the Philippian church, he is teaching us that we should be able to take just about anything that comes our way, even if our names get tarnished in the process, if it means Christ's name is lifted up. This passage, friends, is setting up that well-known verse in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. He doesn't care what happens to himself as long as Christ is lifted up. Paul is laser-focused, as well as us, we should be laser-focused on a Christocentric life that will go anywhere, that will do anything, that will reap any consequences as long as the name of Christ our Lord is lifted up. See, friends, we have confronted in this passage one of the most countercultural ideas that you will hear this week. This passage is pushing in on us in a way that is so countercultural to our culture. Namely, that life is not about us. It's not. It is not about the advancement of our names, of our agendas, our comfort, our protections. Selfish ambition and rivalries, friends, disintegrate in the face of the glories of Christ. They disintegrate. We do not live for ourselves. We live for the name of Christ alone. We are willing to have our names tarnished if it means that his name will be exalted. And that is not the spirit of the days in which we live. Author Oz Guinness writes in his book, Fools Talk This. He says, quote, the age of the internet is said to be the age of the self and the selfie. The world is full of people that are full of themselves. And one of the effects of this globalization is plain. Active and interactive communication is the order of the day. From the shortest texts and tweets to the humblest website, to the angriest blog, to the most visited social networks, the daily communications of the wired world attest that everyone is now in the business of relentless self-promotion. Presenting themselves explaining themselves, defending themselves, selling themselves, or sharing their inner thoughts and emotions as never before in human history. The great goals of life, we are told, are to gain the widest possible public attention and to reach as many people in the world with our products. And always our leading product is us. Unquote. And in walks the truth of Scripture. It says entirely, the opposite. Entirely the opposite. We exist to do whatever it takes not to lift up our own names, to promote our own names, but to promote the name of Christ, even if that means affliction for us. And in that, our joy is made complete. And in that, our joy is made complete. Because we were not made for ourselves, we were made to enjoy the glories of Christ. That's why we were made. And so, friends, right there is the secret of life. There is the secret of life. You are not heard that. I love what, I think it was Colleen that prayed earlier. Here we come to be reminded of what's true. And what's true is we were not made to live for ourselves. We were made to know and to enjoy the greatness of the glories of Christ and to make his name known. And in that, we find true and lasting and everlasting joy. That's why we exist. Self-forgetfulness in the place of Christ's preeminence. 
self-forgetfulness in the place of Christ's preeminence. The idea here, friends, is not thinking more of ourselves, nor is it thinking less of ourselves. But instead, it is thinking of ourselves less. And here's how that happens. Are you ready? How does this happen in our lives? Quite simple. The way that we think of ourselves less is by thinking of Christ more. The more that you're willing to do that, the more that you're willing to think of yourself less and think of Christ more, the more that you're willing to say, I'll take the scorn of a coworker or a family member if it means the truthfulness of Christ gets a hearing. Then the more that happens, the more your joy is being contributed to and the more the glories of Christ are advancing. See, friends, it's a sort of zero-sum game of sorts. The more that we dance with Christ and keep our eyes focused on Him and not our own foolish steps, the more that we will live for the purpose of which we were made. Christ is the one that we were made to dance with and dance for. How else could Paul have made it through all that he made it through? How else are these brothers and sisters that we were praying for earlier, how do they make it through terrible things like prison and persecution and being ripped away from family and friends? Well, because they're able to think of themselves less and think of Christ more. Think of Christ more. Friend, don't take yourself so seriously. Oh, in a town like this, we need to hear that often. Don't take yourself so seriously. Take Christ seriously. Take his name more seriously. That's what God is showing us this morning. Be willing to suffer affliction if it means that Christ will be proclaimed. And as he is, no matter what may come to you, rejoice because the truthfulness of Christ is getting a hearing. Okay. Now, listen, that may mean for some of you, for you parents in particular, that maybe that means you know, you're being chastised at your school. Because a parent is watching the way that you're raising your child. And you humbly and graciously talk to this other parent and tell them why that you're raising your son or daughter in that way. And in the process, they think poorly of you, but Christ gets a hearing. You lose disfavor with them or the school, but Christ gets a hearing. That may mean for some of you college students, some of you need to speak up about the truthfulness of Christ that is being denounced. And you know that if you do that in your classroom, you'll be laughed at and made fun of by professors with degrees because they think they're smarter than you. Rejoice if you receive that. Christ is getting a hearing. The truthfulness of Christ is getting a hearing. So few today are hearing about the truthfulness of Christ. Stand up in your college classrooms. Or it may mean that you tell your boss you can no longer participate in dishonest work practices. Because you're a Christian, because you believe the truthfulness of Jesus and what's right for the world. And in the process, you get fired and you don't have a job, but at least Christ got a hearing. At least Christ got a hearing. It may mean for some of you members of this church, you hear another member of the church gossiping about somebody else in the church, denouncing them in some way, and you enter into the awkwardness, and you say, stop that, brother, sister. Do not speak harm of my brother, sister, your brother, sister. You enter into that awkwardness to stop the gossip. And that may mean that that relationship will have some difficulty, but Christ gets a hearing. 
Christ has a hearing. Whatever it is, we must be willing to receive affliction in favor of joyful proclamation of Christ. Some of you have heard me tell the story before. The story of the Moravians. These wonderfully Christ-exalting crazy people. Crazy Christ-exalted, Christ-Jesus-saturated people that lived in the 18th and 19th century and spread themselves out all over the world for the glories of Christ. They were led by Zinzendorf, that guy I mentioned earlier. They spread the world all over the place. There was a couple of those Moravians found out that there were some slaves in the West Indies, islands, and they wanted to go proclaim Christ to them. And when they went to speak to the owner of those slaves in the West Indies, the owner told them, you cannot go to those islands unless you are a slave yourself. And these two German Moravian Jesus-saturated people said, well, then I'll sell myself into slavery if that's what it takes for Christ to get a hearing amongst those slaves in the West Indies. So they did. They sold themselves into slavery and they boarded a boat And as they're standing on that boat, the Moravian Christian community came to see them off from the boat. And they stood on that shoreline, and just as the boat begins to push away from the shoreline, the Moravian Christian community heard from one of those German Christian men. He screamed from the top of his lungs, May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And they were never heard from again. Is that too extreme? I don't think so. Not if Christ is real. Self-forgetfulness in favor of Christ's preeminence. Personal pain in favor of the promotion of Christ's name. Less me, more him. More him. Whatever it takes. Less convenience, more Christ. Now listen, friends, you don't have to sell yourself into slavery to do that. But you do have to be willing to lose yourself. That's the basic command of Christ. And when you do, if you do that, losing yourself for the glories of Christ, if you do that, you're going to be glad you did. That doesn't mean that you may not suffer as Paul does in this passage. Just as Christ did himself. But even in your suffering, if you hold high the banner of Christ, you will reap the reward of everlasting joy. For the joy set before him. What did Christ do? He endured the cross. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we do not not look to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eternal. meeting with a man that I've met with for four years now. He's not a Christian. And he had a son that was getting bullied. 
And as he's talking to me about that, I was lamenting that that was happening to his son's life. But then he said something, not a Christian, that I wonder if most Christians understand. He said something to me. He said, but isn't that the way of Christians? Aren't they supposed to take pain if it means that they obey? I think that man understood the gospel more than most Christians do. And I've got to be honest with you guys, this is not easy for me. I'm not up here preaching this as though I got it all down. Yeah, no, no, prob- no problem for me as I sit in my nice apartment in Washington, D.C. on a sunny day. I want to get there. I want to get there. I want to be willing to suffer affliction and pain and difficulty and, di- and, 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 and inconvenience if it means Christ can be heard. I want to get there. I'm not there yet, but I want to get there. Every good and perfect gift Brother, sister, comes at a cost. If you're weighing the gospel, you need to know that. If you think you can just trust Jesus and then you get a BMW and a nice house and everything goes well for you, that's not the gospel. And if someone told you it is, they're lying to you. We have a reward that is eternal and it is good and we will enjoy it forever. May we proclaim Christ no matter the cost that may come to us. And so I want to end our time in this passage by doing the thing that Paul rejoiced in. See, it would be easy to preach this passage, tell you what it means, and not actually do what he says to do. To proclaim Christ. So if I were, had the opportunity to speak to someone, to speak to a crowd that could potentially inflict harm upon me, And they were to give me the kind of pulpit and say, go ahead, Nathan, proclaim Christ. I'd like to believe that I would have the courage to say something like this. I am a Christian. I have been changed by the love of Christ. He is my king. He is my great reward. And you ask, who is Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you about him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is ascribed with the holy name of God, Yahweh. The greatest prophet, John the Baptist, said that he was unworthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. The Spirit was glad to descend upon him. The Father took pleasure in him and loved him. The demons sought permission from him to be thrown into pigs as they bowed before him and ascribed him as the Holy One of God. He is more powerful than disease. He is more powerful than those wretched demons. And yes, he is more powerful than the wind and the waves as even they obey him. The people were amazed at his teaching as he, was, as he taught as one who possessed authority. He was and is more powerful than the potency of our sin. He owned the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. He owned them so much so that he could read the Bible, point at himself, drop the mic, sit down, and say nothing else. That's how great he was and is. The holy day, the Sabbath, was not even enough for him because he was and is the Lord of the Sabbath. He told fishermen and tax collectors to put their lives down and follow him, and they did. He is the seed of David and is therefore not only greater than Goliath, he is greater than any other king because he is the king of kings. 
He is the seed of Abraham, and therefore all who know him are considered blessed. He is the seed of Mary, therefore he is humble and full of faith. He is the seed of Joshua, therefore he can lead us into the promised land. He is the seed of Jacob, and therefore he has given rise to a new Israel built on the backs of twelve simple men. He is the son of Judah, and therefore the scepter will never depart from his hand, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He is the redeemer, the healer, the resurrection and the life, the eternal word, the master, the son of man and the lamb of God. He is the second Adam, the light of the world, the friend of sinners. Thank God he's the friend of sinners. He is the God with us. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the bread of life. He is the chief cornerstone, the great deliverer and the good shepherd, the head of the church, the great servant. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one mediator between God and man. He is our peace, the one who sets us free. He is the rock. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine that we abide in to give us life. He is the door that we enter into to have the good life. He is the great high priest, and so he has gone into the Holy of Holies for us that believe, so that we do not need to fear the wrath of God. He is the mighty counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords. He is the mighty one of Jacob, and so he is mighty to save. And he is clothed in apparel that is so splendid that the people of highest fashion would love just to have a thread of his robe. He has no rival that can threaten his rule. No earthly laws, no state, no earthly kings can stop his good purposes in the world. He laughs at the threats of his enemies. His love is steadfast. His compassion never ends. And his righteousness is more pristine than the golden beaches of Bora Bora. His goodness is unparalleled. His joy is unending. He can raise the dead and feed 5,000 men in a day like it was child's play. He has more wealth than the entire wealth of all nations. He can walk on water and fly into the sky. And one day he's coming back the same way he left. And when he does, he will bring heaven to earth. And get this, there will be no need of sun nor moon because his glory will shine so brightly here on this earth. That's how great he is. I wish I could explain him to you. This is our king. He is the one that we proclaim. Let us be willing to lay our lives down that just a shred of those truths can get out in our weeks and in our days. And we never be satisfied until that truth, those truths, spread to all tribes, tongues, and nations. Churches existing, praising the glories of Christ. Making Him known. And people being willing to lay their own lives down so that He would be lifted up. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, when just a shred of these truths are held. Rejoice. Rejoice. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. And none of it came from me. I'm a fool. I never would have chosen to follow him word of my own accord. Oh, he chose me to stand here and say this to you. That's how great he is. And he can do the same with you. May we be a church that's willing to do anything, go anywhere, 
that his name would be lifted up. I think he's worth it. Let's pray. Let me invite the music team to go ahead and come on up. Have mercy on us, God, for protecting our own names. Thank you, God, that you're so good to us and you bear with us that your name might be lifted up. Thank you that you use simple people like us to do that. Oh, what joy is found in the name of Jesus. Thank you for this church, God that sacrificially does so many of these things, that does lean into discomfort for the glories of Christ. May we do all the more. May we plant churches all over the globe. May we lose jobs and walk out of relationships if it means Christ is obeyed. And whether you take this church down and lift up to others, let it be good with us if Christ is proclaimed. Give us passion, God. Give us the desire to herald Jesus. And when rivalries and people of selfish ambition attack us, may we look to Jesus. Find strength in Him. We love you. Thank you that you allow us to be part of this. May we now sing of your glory. May these prayers, this song, be an offering to you, Jesus. And oh, the joy when we will get to do this in sight and no longer by faith. Receive this song and thanksgiving. Amen.